I have a very strange habit um, of re-listening to like 10 or 12 episodes of The Daily, and I, I, did, I even did this last night, and I still cry when I listen to them. Oh um, and I don't know what that is, and my therapist and I should talk about it. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, here with my colleague, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. It has been a really busy and fun week around here, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been pretty hectic, and it's not even over, because tonight is our last Film Friday of the semester, and it's featuring one of our DuPont winners, and you'll hear a little bit more about that later. Yes, with the amazing Sebastian Younger. Looking forward to that. But first, we are bringing you a very special conversation from a standing room only event at the J School last week when we were fortunate enough to have Michael Barbaro, host of the New York Times The Daily, and Zoe Chase from This American Life, who just won a DuPont for her political coverage. And leading the conversation was our very own Professor Daniel Alarcón, who himself is a celebrated podcaster in his own right. He is the host of Radio Ambulante. And a very well-known novelist and writer and journalist and... Soccer player. All things in one. So both of these events time out really well as a jumping-off point to talk about the fact that we are going to be open for submissions on May 1st for the 2019 DuPont Awards. A whole year has passed. It's amazing. Flying by. So we'll tell you more about how to apply after you get your inspiration from this dynamic duo of DuPont winners. And without further ado, here now is an edited conversation between Zoe Chase, Michael Barbaro, and Daniel Alarcone. So thank you so much. I'm hu- I'm a huge fan of, of both of your work. So We're fans of your work. You are also a huge podcaster. <laughs> Um, so, however, okay, thank you. It's all three of it's all three of us. No, you, no, you. Um, so, I wanted to start with uh, uh, it's as I was listening to the daily and, and to your work, uh, Zoe, in the last year and a half or two years. It seems that a big part of it has to do with this particular political moment, and I think that maybe even in the DNA of the daily is this idea that we need to understand the now after after the election, and and Zoe, that seems to be the, like your main concern. In the, in, in the last two years in your reporting. So I, I wanted to talk about how, starting maybe with you, Michael, like how did um, the political moment sort of shape the sound of the show? And then and with you, Zoe, how this became your obsession? The Daily was going to be launched whether or not Donald Trump won or Hillary Clinton won, but if Hillary Clinton had won, it would, would have been a very different show, I think, because we launched it on February 1st, and the president had been inaugurated, I think, 11 days before. And in those 11 days, between inauguration and the launch of the Daily, like 10 things happened that were incomprehensible. There was a crackdown on immigration that was announced. There was a policy on Muslim Americans that was announced. Uh, there there were so many just like... Sean Spicer. Sean Spicer. first press conference right. where nobody could ask questions. I'm suddenly blanking on it, and I'm trying to figure out the psychological reason why I can't recall what happened <laughs> in the first 10 days of this, of this administration. But so many things happened, and, and, then the, and then the last thing that happened the day before our show went live for the first time was the nomination of Neil Gorsuch as a Supreme Court nom- uh, nominee. And so it just gave us such a purpose. We knew exactly what we needed to do in that moment, which was not just be a regular old news show about what happened yesterday, but we needed to make sense of something that was almost impossible to make sense of, and it really galvanized the Daily Team. And you know, you, it's probably clear if you've listened to This American Life or any of the other narrative shows in audio that The Daily owes a pretty significant debt to those shows in terms of our format, which we call narrative news. This idea that you're going to take the 
the principles of narrative storytelling and apply them to the news. And what that actually looks like every day is, you know, we don't just give away the story at the beginning. We don't just kind of barf it all out at you. It's, there's a lot of suspense and... Very evocative. <laughs> uh, well, this was actually a big transition for me as a print journalist to go from, here's the news, and now let's talk about it. It's, you know, how to apply those principles, which were very, very new to me. You saw that on the first day of the show. You know, it wasn't just that the president had announced a nominee to the Supreme Court. You just, you heard the sound in the room. That was the first thing you heard, and then it, it unfolded from there. And that was the, the way we decided the rest of the show was going to sound. It was always, there's always going to be suspense. There's always going to be a narrative spine to the story. There's always going to be a, a really significant emphasis on explanatory storytelling. And the world needed that more than ever in the first few weeks of the Trump administration. I suspect the orderly nature of a Clinton presidency would have just would have felt different. I think there would have been less of a need for this, and people would have been drawn a little less quickly to it. I mean, we we talk about, with very mixed emotions, the Trump bump in journalism, whether it's the Washington Post subscription numbers, New York Times. I think the Daily is absolutely, you know, a part of the Trump bump, people's fascination and craving for a different kind of way of understanding the news. Yeah, and almost a validation of like, I'm not, I'm not crazy, am I? Like, this is really happening. Yeah. yeah, it's really happening, and you really want to understand it. And for our part, we sensed that people were very alarmed, but that they didn't want to understand it in an alarmist way. And the beauty of this thing, narrative news, as we call it, is that it's just, a, it's just a highly rational, nice way of absorbing the news because you're asked to settle in. We ask you to give us 20 minutes and really tell you a story with lots of voices and sound and. And I think that's a, that's a pleasant way to be told something really awful is happening. So with, with your piece, uh, the one, the DuPont, you, you take us to a place called St. Cloud before the election happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that, that seems to be doing all the things that Michael just described. I mean, hopefully, I think a lot of us at, at This American Life have been jealous of the daily because it's the no. thing that the daily well the daily it's very like i i find this news environment like very exciting and 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 stimulating and it can be sort of hard to figure out then like where do where do the st- kinds of stories that we do fit into this like exciting and stimulating news environment um the thing that the daily is doing that's cool also i think you guys have so many scoops at the new york times and then so you, so it's like first of all you're learning the actual scoop on your show And there's these characters like Mattapuzo is like a a, this great character, you know, like and these and obviously Maggie Haberman is like a celebrity at this point, and you get this kind of intimate time with her on your show. It's like a very weird mix of things that only you guys have because it's at the New York Times. Anyway, so uh, we are thinking a lot about how great the Daily is. Um, So, but. At This American Life and then at Planet Money also, it's an economic show at NPR that I worked at for a while. Um, the The goal was always like telling these longer stories that would sort of explain the moment in a way that like had not been explained per- that way before. Like it would give you a new insight about this particular moment. And basically when Trump was was moving ahead in the polls and like, December 2015 and he was starting to look like he was the, he was the front runner and he announced that he wanted a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into America um, and I just was like this is really wild 
and um, I didn't want to work on anything else. Basically, after after he said that, after that moment, um, and I think that in terms of going to St. Cloud, I did the story about immigration. I was I had been trying to figure out like how could he say that and it be a popular idea. And I was new to to politics, and I think there were times when. I was asking some really basic questions, and I think some people, definitely on staff, we would have arguments of, like, you're just asking a question where the answer is, like, racism. And I was like, I I know, but I feel like even though that is sort of the first answer, there's still all these mechanisms in place that are allowing us to be at this moment with this candidate. And if we can um, illuminate those mechanisms, that's informative, that's interesting. And... The St. Cloud story, which was about, it ended up being about these sort of traveling guys who went around talking about Sharia law and the dangers of Sharia law in the upper Midwest. And it felt a little bit like satisfying of like, this isn't the answer to everything, but this is a reason why this idea is resonating in America. And I just feel like that's the kind of stuff that, that we keep looking for it. You know, you know we, we talk a lot about in, in radio about finding good talkers. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly you're, for the first character, the guy you meet uh, like at the, outside the, the, the convention, uh-huh. who's like this reluctant, like re- very reluctant to call his friends and colleagues racists. Mm-hmm. Although it seems like off tape he probably would have. Can, can you, I, I was wondering if you could just talk about what, like how you identify what a good talker is. And, and then I want to throw the same question at you, Michael, because I imagine as a print journalist the definitions of what a good talker are, are different. Yeah, I mean, I think that a big, big part of my job and probably the other, and I think the other producers too at This American Life, is just casting, finding the person that you're going to want to listen to. And that doesn't necessarily mean the most likable person. It just means the person that you're going to be intrigued by. So you want to hear more from them. A lot of times, though, it does mean likable. And that can be hard, I think, journalistically. Like, I just was doing a, a, a story recently about a senator who was not a good talker. Um, and so, and if I had been thinking purely for a radio story and not just, like, here's a question I have, I would have gone with Lindsey Graham if he had been open to it. He's a much better talker. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, like, what an amazing talker Lindsey Graham is, but he's, like, a really funny person to listen to. But, like, that's that's weird. Like, you're trying to find a senator who's a good talker means you kind of want your listeners to like hearing from this senator who's a politician and you don't want to be saying like he loved this politician you know that's certainly not your job so i just think it's like super super hard and i and at the republican convention i had done like 50 interviews or something before i found bobby because you wanted to find a a, a good talker like 50 like, interviews it, it's i think like tons of interviews, but not even like the show doesn't come out every day, right? <laughs> but not even like long interviews, like you just like just Vox, like yeah. chatting and like being like, "Where are you from? Um, what are you? Why are you here? What are you interested in?" And I was just by myself, so I just would like go around from person to person and person and person and person, and ask like, "Why do you think immigration is such a big issue this year?" And that's a casting yeah. process. You have to find somebody who like people are going to want to listen to, who has an interesting story 
who seems regular, who's not going to sort of like stand up on a soapbox. I just think it's such a huge, huge part of the process and can lend itself to some problematic journalistic issues too. I don't know if you were, were you at, were you at Third Coast? This is an audio conference that, and I'm so new to all this that I was like, ooh, audio conference. <laughs> and I went to it and there was a panel called The Tyranny of the Good Talker. Oh yeah. And I, didn't uh, that, but I, I, didn't, I was so drawn to that set of words together and I didn't yeah. even understand what it meant. And by the end I did. And now I think about it a lot. It's this idea that a seductive talker is such a powerful force that you're drawn into them or him or her, mm-hmm. and you make all sorts of decisions in audio about, well, they're a really great talker, but then, but then you're already seduced. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a tyrannical power because you may, be, you may go back to Senator Graham all the time. Well, maybe he doesn't deserve that. Or maybe you should be talking to Senator Flake. Maybe you should be talking to Senator Collins. I mean, so it's really interesting. And it also brings up really complicated gender issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Zoe alluded to it, and, and I guess this wouldn't have been so obvious to, to people who don't, don't work in the Times building, but that your colleagues would be such so good on the radio? Such good talkers. Oh yeah. That's not a surprise if you've ever gone to a bar with a bunch of journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, I mean, they're great storytellers. They love to tell stories and, and experiment with ways of telling them. And that's been the most gratifying part of the Daily is just how open Times journalists are to new ways of telling their stories. And that was true before the Daily, but it's tested their patience because we asked them for, well, we... We sometimes are a little bit deceptive in the sense we say it's just going to take 20 minutes to do this episode. And then like 90 minutes later, they're like, I really have to go. <laughs> I have to finish my story. So they are really good talkers. And what's surprising is how open they are to the producers of The Daily who are brilliant, who are the real, real makers of the show. Challenging them, asking them to try things again, asking them to try to tell a story differently than they might normally. I mean, there's nothing natural about a New York Times reporter coming in front of a microphone and telling a narrative version of the story that they've just told in the classic inverted pyramid of print journalism, which is to say news, context, more context, quote, et cetera, and then unfolds till the kicker. Um, For that to translate into into a great audio story means we often have to say, um, can you think about starting the story here? I know that might not seem natural, but would you give it a try? And, And they've been really, really, really lovely about it. I imagine that the success of the show and when they hear the finished product, that sort of helped sell it in the building. But right. was there any resistance at the beginning? I th- people ask that question a lot. You know, were, were Times journalists skeptical of audio, of the time it took? And I mean, right away, it, it just worked. I mean, I, and we owe a big thank you to Adam Liptak, who was our first guest, who went so crazily out of his way. This is the first episode of a show that does not exist. No one has any idea if it's worth any of their time. And Adam Liptak, who's our Supreme Court reporter at the Times, was preparing profiles of two different Supreme Court nominees, Neil Gorsuch, and as we like to say on The Daily, the other guy, because no one can remember who he is. And, uh, but remember, the president had done one of these you know, kind of cliffhanger, you know, bake-off things. It could be this guy, it could be that guy, they're both going to be there. And um, so we asked Adam, could we do, pretty please, four interviews with you, all ahead of time. One was, it's Neil Gorsuch, Let's talk about him. And then can you pick one of his most famous cases way back in his career that will mean something and just narrate that case? Tell us what happened. Okay, can you do both of those things with the other guy, who he is, and a, and a case that really matters? And so Adam sat for four different interviews. And so we had a whole set of two episodes in the can that night. And then the president comes out and announces Neil Gorsuch is going to be the nominee. And, and I'll admit this, we all clapped on the Daily Team because it was a better interview. 
because it involved a, a now famous case involving um, contraception and um, a store called Hobby Lobby. It was the it was the founder of Hobby Lobby. Hobby. Yeah, oh. and and he did something brilliant. Anyway, I won't get into all that, but. It was a better episode, and I think right away, once we advertised to that, it was like, well, you're not, it's not going to be as much work as Adam did, but can you come on? And you know, and I think that was a powerful example, because Adam's also a, a renowned journalist. Sure. He's also an older journalist. I mean, everything about it said to everybody else, like, all right, okay, yeah, I Yeah, it's got this. the stamp of approval from a yes. veteran. Right, right, right. Uh, Zoe, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I've heard you say a number of times, um, and I, I can't tell if this is just self-deprecation or, or not, that you... You just said sort of like you know you don't know anything about politics, and before you said like uh, I've heard you say about Planet Money that you you know you didn't know anything about economics. So I guess the the the, the hardball question is like is that self-deprecation? Like be honest. And the other the other version of that question though is, and perhaps more useful to our students, is there a type of 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 not knowing that that can be that kind of driving curiosity that can lead you in, in, to, to find great stories? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's definitely true about economics, because <laughs> um, that's like that's just a that's really a, a world that's a little bit separate than politics. Like you have to like go through the door labeled economics and like immerse yourself in it. Whereas politics, it's kind of like here. I do think that it's useful, but I'm not. I wouldn't advocate for it or something like that. You just use what you have. I think that some people. At Planet Money, you know, like they did have a an MBA, and that was helpful. Um, it, it's not like I wish they hadn't had it because they would have been a better reporter without it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That's cool, but like, there's like a, a thing that you do when you sort of start a new world like that, a new beat, where you like nerd out about it. You read all these authors that that like other people maybe read a long time ago. Um, other reporters who are excited like give you a bunch of books and they tell you you know these are these are the reporters to follow and there's a, just an excitement about going into like a new world of reporting that I think comes out in the stories that you do. Um, uh, Michael, I wanted to ask you a, a related question. I think I guess you've gone from having a beat to being a generalist as the host. I guess I'm wondering how, if you miss it, if you miss sort of the deep dive that Zoe was just describing, where you nerd out about a topic, because you, you can't now, because tomorrow the show's about something else. Right. We nerd out pretty hard every day on, the, on these <laughs> subjects, I and mean, we have to, because we go through a process of, of whittling down a big subject to something manageable in a 20-minute show in, you know, six or eight hours every day, and so there might be five, four or five or six producers in a room and one of us is Googling something and reading it aloud to the others, and the other is starting to open up a Google Doc and create a set of questions. And we strip away so many of the obvious versions of a story and re while we're researching it and get to something that's you know more distilled and incisive and interesting and focused. And along the way, you're picking up a, a fair amount of knowledge. You kind of have to. And we also spend a meaningful amount of time every day brainstorming with the reporter who's on the subject ahead of time which is also a way of figuring out if they're a good talker. And so we're not, we're not exactly casting within the times the way you are, but we're trying to make sure that we have a compelling person telling the story. So between all that, we pick up a lot of, of information. And then we go and, and then we do the interview, and then, and then you have your episode. But, so I don't, I don't miss being a beat reporter um, because I like dipping in and out of these subjects and feeling by the end of the day like we've arrived at a really great way of telling a story, a really nice idea, uh, hopefully an emotionally, you know, meaningful story arc. And I find that 
I find that more satisfying in some ways than I than I did traditional beat reporting because because it's just a the product is beautiful and and, the, and I like the, I like the process I like all the elements of surprise that come with it. Do you, Michael? Do you have a favorite episode? Is it possible to have a favorite episode of a show that comes out every day? I have a very strange habit um, of re-listening to like ten or twelve episodes of the daily, and I. I, did, I even did this last night, and I still cry when I listen to them. Oh my God. Um, and I don't know what that is, and my therapist and I should talk about it, but um, but I do. And sometimes it's a combination of the story and the music and this and just the guest. And last night, I mean, one of my if you asked everyone on the daily, you know, truth serum, what's your favorite episode? I think a lot of of them would say it was the kids episode we did. It was about two sisters, twins from Massachusetts and they were both in the Girl Scouts and one of them decided to try to join the Boy Scouts and her sister, her other sister stayed in the girls in the Girl Scouts and they're in conversation as as is their father and it's it's just it's just the most beautiful thing I've we've ever done uh, it's 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 heartbreaking to hear young people talk about the pain of feeling excluded or belonging and they're so they're so young and they're so honest, and their parents are the, I mean, they're dream parents in terms of letting their kids be who they want to be despite all the pain that might come from it, and um, it's just beautiful. And it was an experiment that I think worked really well. Yeah, yeah I remember that one. So could you talk a bit about the, you know, Michael's talked a bit about the editorial process there at The Daily. At, at This American Life, how many people touch a story before it goes to air? I mean, and I what's know that like? It's like you know, it's like it's the whole staff. It's like everybody. It's just like obsessive and in, and intense and difficult and stressful. The thing that I talk about the most with with radio is that you don't do it by yourself. And anybody who thinks you can do a radio story by yourself, like it just doesn't make any sense. It's never worked that way for me. And then. Ira, who's one of the greatest radio people ever, like, he's not by himself. It's just very, 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 very collaborative. You pitch to the whole staff, and the whole staff talks about the pitch, and then you are working with one or two people, and you talk about the tape you're going to go get. Um, you go get the tape. You call the other producers or your editor from the you field. You say tape. Do you mean, like, histor- what do you mean exactly? Uh, the tape is like what we're making now. Um, it just, you know, the interviews, the interviews, like the questions that you're going to ask and, but not just the interview questions that you're going to ask. It's also like, okay, if you're going to be at this event, um, what do you need to capture at the event? You know what I mean? Like, like ambi and like to set the scene and like yeah, what kinds of voices. Yeah, scene setting stuff, but, but also like, okay, so you, you obviously need the speaker, but what kind of people reacting to the speaker do you need? So you're going to need tape from somebody who's like mad that this is happening and tape from somebody who's a huge fan or something like that. So, so you'll talk about it that way, not just, not just the interview questions you're going to ask. Um, and then you might talk about somebody to look for. You know, if you're going to a place, see if you can find the old bartender. Like, you really might do that. You just might. It's Sometimes it's a good way to start out, even though it's cliche. You might, you'll be brainstorming with a producer who will tell you, like, if you're struggling, like, try this or try that. Um, and you constantly will call, at least I do, I'm, like, always calling and texting other producers on the show about the tape that I'm getting. And, my, and Ben Calhoun, who I work with a lot, I mean, Ben 
calls me like it's too much. You know what I mean? Like it's like, but that's how that's how we work. You know, he'll call me on in the car ride where he's following the guy between interviews to be like, this just happened. Now I'm going to this event. You know, it just it's and and a lot of times I'll record those calls even though I don't use them because maybe that'll be helpful. It's just. It's just a constant, I think, conversation with the rest of the staff. By the time you have most of the tape that you want, you'll play the tape. Well, actually, sometimes you just play it from the very beginning, but you'll play just the tape. You'll pull selections of the tape. You play it for a couple other people. You talk about the structure of the story. You write the story. Then you go into an edit in the edit room that's filled with people, and you read the story, and then you keep swapping editors in and out so there's always somebody new who who hears it again and this is true for the top of this American life with Ira like the one thing that Ira skips I feel like now is he doesn't play the tape for the producers before that kind of knows what good tape is by now yeah he just it's like it's it's funny I've never thought I'm like but he 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 is that dependent on the process that um for the top of the show he'll read a draft of it a bunch of us will edit it, and then we'll go through three rounds of the edit, on, even on the day of the show, swapping in new people. It's just, I can't imagine doing it differently at, at, the, at this point. Um, I, I'm interested, and one of the things that, that I admire about the show, you know, it's been around for more than 20 years. There's been several generations now of, of producers whose voices you associate very clearly with the show, yeah. apart from, you know, the continuity of Ira, of course. Um, can you talk about the process of, of being brought in sort of like into the fold and like sort of like this is how we do things here, this is what we sound like, but at, at the same time I feel like they give young producers in particular a way, a, a space to, to sort of find their voice as well. Yeah, I don't know though how deliberate it is, the process of, of coming into this American life. It's a little bit like sink or swim, I think. Like you're sort of expected to have stuff that you want to do. And so... Um, so when you come in, it's a little bit like, okay, like now is your chance to do your stuff that you want. And that's really daunting and horrible at first. <laughs> at least I thought it was. Some people, though, are able to just do that. So I think there is a, a confidence at This American Life that people have that's like my own curiosity is interesting. And I'm going to, and so, and you're, I'm on kind of a long leash and I'm going to follow it pretty far. And that's how you ended up with something like S Town. Right. You know, like S Town is such an extraordinary story that is a real product, I think, of the This American Life process of like, well, I'm curious, I'm trying, I'm curious, I'm trying, I'm talking about it, I'm playing the tape. And if you've ever heard Brian talk about S Town, they really didn't know what it was going to be for so long. Um, and part of the reason that he's able to do it is at This American Life, we have like a 40% kill rate of stories or something. You're always allowed to kill it if it's not good, which you think would be scary, but it actually is It's very liberating because it means you can try. Mm -hmm, right. And you're not going to disappoint everybody if you totally screw it up, even though you feel really bad. Um, so, And I think that This American Life coming into it can be super alienating, and that's a problem. Like, yeah. it's kind of a socialist dictatorship, you know? Right. Ira's the boss. He's the boss. He, he has taste, and what he likes is, is what's on the show. Right. If you guys had a 40% kill rate, you'd come out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's right. Yeah, we yeah. do not have a 40%. <laughs> we do not have a 40% kill rate. But I think 
like Ira, we have a, a leader. Her name is Lisa Tobin, and she has really encouraged experimentation, which I think is I think what makes is what makes the Daily this very peculiar weekday news show. Is that on Monday you might hear about a bombing in Syria that happened over the weekend, and you might have Helene Cooper, our Pentagon report, talking about it, and then on Tuesday you might hear this whimsical biographical tale of Tanya Harding, and so. Within the boundaries of, of a new show, we really want to not just be a new show. But we we cannot kill four out of ten shows because we wouldn't come out. So we have to be, within that notion of experimentation, we have to be incredibly structured. So we don't have the time to do the kind of listening and re-listening that Zoe is describing. We have to fit it into a, a 12 or 15 hour day. And we work, we do work unusually long hours uh, to make the show. And there are these incredibly rigorous systems in place. You know, we want to record, we want to figure out what our topic is by this time of day, usually around 11 or 11.30. We want to record, if possible, by three or four or five at the latest, unless there's extraordinary breaking news or Matapuzo can't be in the studio till 8.30 because he's, he's got some reporting he has to do. And, and, then, and then it's just cutting and it's so systematic and there are, it, like Zoe said, n there's no one person making the daily because if you hear it the next day, you'll notice there's, there's me asking the questions, there's the guest answering them, there's historic tape being introduced, there's music, there's scoring. There, it's a pretty egoless process because it just has to be made and wonderful moments have to be killed and music that sounds okay, doesn't sound good enough, has to get stripped away and replaced with something else. And, and then at 1 a.m. I get the call that says, um, we realize y you need to say something at the end of the episode you didn't say, so can you get under the covers with your microphone in bed and do it? And sometimes people notice that it sounds a little different. Um, oh you guys can probably tell. People are the worst. <laughs> people are the worst. Everyone's a critic. Yeah. Why, is you why do you sound so muffled? You sound muffled today. Well, I'll tell you why I sound muffled. Because <laughs> the thing you hear at the beginning, which we call the billboard, you know, like today. Da -da -da, like I had to do that under a, you know, under the sheets of my bed at 2.30 in the morning because we realized there was an error in it. Do you guys, like, I forget, honestly, which shooting it was, which is horrible. But there was a gun store owner that you yeah. guys talked to that was such a wonderful interview. And I remember thinking, like, I wonder how, because they're a new show with a bunch of reporters on the ground who are covering this, when do you guys decide we're going to call the gun store owner and when do you decide we're going to talk to the Times reporter? And I know it's probably not that methodical, but... No, we think about that a lot. I think the, the question of mass shootings is one we are really attuned to because sadly we've had how many in the last year maybe somewhere around eight or ten a bunch yeah and it was somewhere after the fourth or fifth where we said to ourselves well we we just can't we just can't recreate these i mean who wants to hear the narration of a mass shooting it's too painful it and it risks glamorizing it and just maybe even encouraging other mentally unstable people to contemplate it and so we decided that Pretty much from there on out, when there was a mass shooting, we wanted to tell it as differently as possible. And one episode was just the history of the NRA after a mass shooting. Mm -hmm. The other was talking to a gun store owner in Virginia who we couldn't believe agreed to talk to us. He had sold the gun to the Virginia Tech shooter and knew it because the ATF showed up with the receipts, which were kept in the shooter's bag. 
And um, Ike Sreez Kandaraja, who's a producer on The Daily, had a very gentle pre-interview with this guy, and he agreed to talk to us. And we structured the interview in a way that I, I, I still remember how surprised I was by how we decided to do it. We, we didn't want listeners to know he was the owner of a store who had sold a gun to a mass shooter until about halfway, almost three-quarters of the way in. That's so you cool. began to understand who he is and why he's in this business and how he thinks. And and then you learn. You kind of connect with him. It's a really nice. It's interview. it's a very surprising interview. You, you you would never suspect that you could like the guy who owns this gun store or identify with him. And maybe you can't even at the end of the episode, but you certainly understand who he is. And he's a human being, and it's very very powerful. And at the end, he he's he, because we had built that trust and because we had let him be a real human. By the end, he. he he really wrestled with it. He told the story of a woman who came into his store, bought a gun, and committed suicide in the parking lot. And he talked about how, how horrible that was. And yet, he, in his mind, it was not his fault that he had sold her the gun. And he obviously has made, made peace with that in his mind. And the listener gets to grapple with him grappling, and that's, like, that's the beauty of audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's what we decided. We're not just going to retell. We're not going to recreate shootings anymore. I think it's not necessarily a blanket policy for us, but but it, it, it feels more or less that's super interesting. like the policy. Um, I, I, I want to ask one more question to you, Michael. Um, I think probably a lot of people who read the news don't, when you're just reading the paper, especially a paper like the Times that has you know, the Times voice, yeah. you never really know. Like, often I read an article without even knowing who wrote it. The thing that shocked us about the Daily, or, you know, one of our goals, as I said, was to bring these journalists to life. Um, what we didn't anticipate was how much listeners would be intimately bonded to the show and to the voices. Uh, and a couple of months ago, we got a request that I think really encapsulates this. It was a it was a a, a man in Brooklyn who wanted to propose to his girlfriend, and he asked us if we would do a fake billboard of the show. Um, with music that would invite her to say yes to him, and oh so God. and so we did it, and we played this. Uh, I recorded it in the studio. It was you know somewhere in Brooklyn. This guy is on his knee asking, and we said all <laughs> the names, and and we had a little some clever ending. Um, and the last line was, you know, it's 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 Saturday, your anniversary day, and it was beautiful. Um, and he played it, and she said yes. And they sent us an edible arrangement as a thank you, <laughs> and um, and 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 the lesson there is that like that doesn't happen through bylines, sure. gray bylines in the paper. Yeah. There's something, and Zoe knows this very well. There's something spectacular about audio. There's something so intimate about about being, you know, in between those two ears, um, and it's it's trans- it's been transformational for me and i and i think the daily's been transformational for the times in that sense too because these journalists wanted to find a way to have a deeper relationship with the people consuming the news and it, and we're just so lucky that audio happened at this moment when people were craving it yeah so do you have anything to add on that idea of the that sort of unique relationship between an audio reporter and the audience i mean you've always worked in audio yeah that's the thing like i've never i've never thought about I mean, it's not, I've never thought about doing stories a different way, but it's always been a part of how I do the stories is that people are going to listen to it. And, and that's been a problem for me in some ways, I think with my voicing at first, like I sort of went through a lot of ups and downs with how I was. Your voice is fantastic. Thank you. But in the beginning, I was trying to do this thing where I was trying to kind of like punch through and in a sort of NPR remove. And so I had a very intense 
voicing because I really wanted people to listen. Mm. Um, and then it felt like too intense when I got to Planet Money. And I don't know. So, it, but I, but I, one thing that I think about is so Ira, Ira has like morphed into like he is the radio now. <laughs> like he's more the radio than a person. And so he says the most, the most, the most intimate secret things that Ira has ever said, he said on a microphone in an interview. Like, he, we learned about his divorce. It's very easy for me to talk about because he broadcasted on the radio. We didn't know, though, as a staff. We didn't know that he was going through that. Like, he didn't talk about it. We learned about it in an edit, one of these group edits. Mm. Like, he was reading this, a story to us, and then he mentions it in the story that he and his wife are separated, and people start trying to edit it, and then somebody's like, are you okay? And he's like, oh, yeah. He, his intimacy with the microphone is just, like, beyond. Like, it is, he is so close to it, and I do think that, like, it can mean he's, like, a little crazy, but I think that it sets up a relationship that we all have with it. Like, you just need to be sort of as close and personal and intimate as possible in this medium, and that is, like, the best way to approach it, you know? Ira, of course, is Ira Glass, and we are lucky enough to see him around the J School on a fairly regular basis. Uh, Last year, he was one of our special guests at the 75th anniversary DuPont ceremony, gave a very impassioned and very personal speech. You can actually listen to it at another one of our On Assignment podcast episodes. And Ira is actually going to be up here again soon to be our graduation speaker this year. Looking forward to that. So at this point in the conversation, it was time for questions from the audience. And I took advantage of my front row seat to kick off the questions. Thanks so much, you guys, for being here. Zoe, can you explain a little bit about the themes of the This American Life show, sort of how you guys pick themes? There was a great spoof on a Simpsons episode mm-hmm. when Ira's like, today in This American Life, condiments, mayonnaise, <laughs> mustard, whatever. I mean, like, how do you guys... Days of the week, how, where, where do those ideas come from? And Michael, your voice is so closely linked to the identity of the Daily. How long are you going to do the show? Are you burnt? <laughs> is, someone, is another person going to join you, or what's the plan there? That's a, I'm, now I'm, like, stressed about that. <laughs> uh, as far as the themes go, it's just not totally a well-thought-out process, I guess. Like, the themes often come from the anchor story. So there's a story first, and then it's like, what's the story about? What is it saying? And all, And you're basically just trying to not get to a point where the theme is, like, what you thought would happen isn't happening, you know, like, which... Is that is sort of the perennial theme, you know, things I was surprised by. Like, you just don't want it to be that. You want it to say something beyond that. Um, but a lot of times, the, I, definitely the, I think some of the strongest shows come when there's a theme that everyone's excited about, like an idea that everyone's excited about. A, like, for instance, Hannah being like, have you seen this episode of I Love Dick, which is this show on, I guess, HBO. I don't actually know what it's on. And all these women tell their sexual histories. Like, you know what I mean? And then it became Hannah's show, which is this show called Five Women, which is like one of the most extraordinary mm-hmm. pieces of radio just ever. That was a, is that, have you all listened to Five Women? Yeah. 
it's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, I th- I know many daily producers have listened to it more than once. Yeah, it's um, really it's, it's really remarkable. So your question was about the host of the daily and how long he can keep it up. Um, and th- the answer is that um, it's been, a, I think I've been, so I've hosted the daily for a year and two months. And throughout that period, our number one goal was just kind of stabilizing the show. And we, we basically started making a show that was better and more well-received than we ever imagined. And and once that happens, you're over the crisis of, is this good? It was good. And then the second crisis unfolds, which is, how do you sustain it? How do you keep... In, and, and in a way, the stakes are much higher than you anticipated. So the audience got really big, really fast, and we wanted to keep making the show of the same quality. And we needed to h- ramp up our hiring and make a bigger team and, and, and not have people staying up at all crazy hours. And um, in some ways, the simplest thing was just to have me... St- be a, the stable thing that I am, which is the familiar voice of the host. Um, and so one of the last things we're going to solve, I think, is the the guest host problem or the second host issue. And I think you'll see us experimenting with it. I mean, we, I, we did a wonderful thing earlier this week where one of our producers, Andy Brown, did the interview with this cheerleader. I thought it was really powerful. It's a really good episode. Um, we do non-narrated episodes where basically there is no host. There was, an, there was an episode involving a reporter named Jack Healy at the Times who went and spoke to a group of, of female students from Parkland, Florida, and he just let the t- tape roll. He just he, he narrated the episode. As they talked, they processed the shooting. And I thought that was remarkable, so I, I, I stepped away from that. Um, but there is a longer-term issue, which is we need a... We need a guest host that people are comfortable with and we we have to we have to get there and uh, for my mental health and for the show um we we, we will resolve it um i wanted to ask you particularly zoe um i've been reporting a lot on the right and i really enjoy the way you approach your reporting but a lot of it kind of a lot of what i really enjoy about it is you sort of pushing back and exploring how you're responding to the people you come across as views and the way that they think about things and often it's you just like really struggling to understand it and maybe Mm -hmm. like at what point do you stop trying to understand because like how do you have that kind of empathy and understanding when there is that wall where you just stop being able to understand you're looking for an insight that you think is going to be helpful to a national audience and you kind of know when you found it and when you haven't there was this one story that I worked on um, where I was following this guy for a while um, who was very performative. I thought his character would kind of break, like, or that his character would break and then I would get some insight. He could explain why he sort of puts on this suit of a character because I was really interested in, in the performance that he was doing. But then Charlottesville happened and... Um, I still was interested, but I sort of ran out of time and there was no insight there. So you just, if you don't find the insight that is going to help you explain some bigger thing, then it's not, it's not really worth, you know, what's the take? Like, it's just not worth the story. You have to be able to explain something. And I was realizing that with, with Sal, I wasn't going to be able to explain anything except for that he exists and he's a guy. <laughs> and um, and then I went searching for for a different character who was more conflicted, who might be able to to bring an insight to to this group. And I think he he did, but he was not my ideal guy. 
so as you guys have sort of talked about, I guess, uh, one of the most powerful aspects of audio media is how emotionally you can be over it. And many of my fondest memories of listening to both This American Life and The Daily have just been moments where I just pause and need to cry for a bit. <laughs> so I guess my question is, where in the editorial process do you decide that you should set out space for people to just let their emotions catch up? And going back to, I guess, your infamous moment, Michael, where you just cry on the tape, when you decide to insert your own emotions into the story? I mean, this is a, this is a really a great question for the producers, you know, who are the audio masters who make the daily and create these moments. I can just tell you from my experience in the editing process with them, and in particular that episode, that we're very aware of when a moment is emotional. We hear it too. We hear it in the moment. We hear it when we're editing. You know, I've, I've watched the editors and producers in the, in the Google Docs, you know, leave the space, you know, the word music in all caps is suddenly there. And you, you can tell that they're asking for more of a pause there. I mean, that's probably the classic thing we do, right? We just literally give you the space to have a reaction. And that might mean me not saying something. That might mean a long tale of music so that you just get to process it. Um, I think one of the great debates in podcasting is whether music is manipulative or whether it encourages the reaction you're already having. We definitely hear about that. I think it's a good debate to have. Um, I think for the most part, we're trying to match the moment and amplify it rather than elicit some reaction you're not having. When it came to the coal miner, I think that goes back to me feeling really exposed by the election. And the coal miner that we interviewed about his career decided to turn the question back on me. That was just so unexpected. I was pretty new to being a host of a podcast. And when Mark Gray decided to ask me if I'd ever been to a coal mine and if I really understood his industry, I think psychologically, because I've talked a lot about it with my therapist, I felt like he was asking me if I really understood what had just happened in the election, and I felt really vulnerable in that moment, and I just started to cry. So that's what happened. We decided to keep it in. We decided not to keep all of it in. I mean, there was a moment or two where I was trying to get a question out through my emotion, and no one needs to hear that. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> we always talk about if you feel anything. It's, are, is this making me feel anything? I'm not feeling anything. It's a, just a very central question at This American Life. Like You just have the luxury. You don't have to just cover the news. So I think I would just say that we, we're choosing stories that are going to make you feel a thing. And so as far as in the, in the um, editorial process, it's, it's, just a, it's a constant question. What does this make you feel? Does this tape make you feel anything? Does this, do you feel anything about this person? Should we maybe remove this person from the story? Because it's just kind of taking you out of emotionally connecting to the story. Like, I think it, it's actually, like, central in how we think about what stories to do. I listen to the daily, daily. Uh, it's Thank part you. of my morning routine. Um, and one episode that really caught me off guard was the episode about Ida B. Wells that mm -hmm. you did with Caitlin Dickerson. Mm -hmm. um, and it felt like such a departure from the usual programming. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that episode. I thought it spotlighted an amazing woman and her incredible work and that it was necessary, but it, I am very curious about what that conversation was like. Sure. Um, when the paper produced a special section called Overlooked, if you guys are time subscribers or readers, um, everyone in the Daily was, was really drawn to it. It was a section about all of the obituaries that were never written for women who, even in their time, should have been recognized for the work they were doing, but weren't, because Time's obituaries have been very much about the, the, the white men who did big things in their era who died. And it was a really ambitious project, and 
uh, right away producers on the team said they wanted to do something. So it was really just a question of how many to do. I have to confess to an embarrassing degree how little I knew about Ida B. Wells. And it was kind of a no-brainer because we're, we're a show about truth-telling, and Ida B. Wells' whole career was about uncomfortable truth-telling. And that, that was probably one of our more experimental episodes. Yeah, it resonates with me to this day. So. I'm really glad. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Lisa and Abby, for your help with this. And thank you to all of you. And while we're thanking people, thank you to our very own J-School professor, Daniel Alarcon, for moderating the conversation. Next up on the podcast, we're going to be hearing from directors Sebastian Younger and Nick Quested about their DuPont award-winning film about Syria called Hell on Earth. I'm looking forward to that. And as a reminder, the DuPont Awards will be open for submissions on May 1st. Go to dupont.org for details and enter your best work. Enter it now. Let's plug it. Enter the DuPont Awards. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and the Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Sarah Wyman with the assistance of our DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. And we'll be back next month with another episode of On Assignment.